0: Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. All right. So he talks a lot about believing in these next few verses. And he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. The Bible emphasizes the object of our faith and not just the act of believing. Now, look at that again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It's not whoever believes is born of God. But whoever believes these certain things. Um You know, today, people say, you know, uh, I, uh that he's a person of faith. Or, you know, I wish I could have faith. You know, and, and what do they mean by that? They don't mean necessarily that they could believe any particular thing. They just want to believe something. You know, content is irrelevant. They just want the, the emotion... The action, the attitude of, of, of having faith. You know, so people talk about, you know, I'm seeking for faith without having any content, without having anything in particular they believe. That's nonsense. You know, people are looking for an experience, any experience. No matter what they experience, they just want the experience. No matter what they believe, they just want to believe. So people will talk about somebody of faith. What do you mean they're somebody of faith? Well, they, they have a lot of faith. Faith in what? Well, they just have, just, they just have a lot of faith. There's no, there's no content to the faith. And therefore, there's no meaning to it. What he wants us to do is believe that Jesus Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. You know, if you love God, you have to love those who God loves. You have to love his children. You know, isn't that true? If if you love parents, you have to love their children. They're, you can't mistreat their kids and stay on good terms with the parents. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So he ties these whole things together. We know that we love the brethren when we love God and keep his commandments. You can't separate love for God and love for others. You know, you love men properly when you love God first of all, and uh, when you obey God. So, so he, he intertwines all of these. You know, there's 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 you know it's kind of one big circle uh, in all of that. And uh, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. So you love God by obeying Him, and His commandments are not burdensome. You know, he's, he's not asking us to do something that is just a, a big load, a big drag. You know, it's so difficult. You know, it's a blessing to do what God says. Uh, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Um, so, you know, you think about what the world says. The world will say, Oh, God's commands are too restrictive. This is too much of a burden. You know, this is too hard. Uh, but, but we see what God says as a delight and as a way to overcome the world, as a way to victory. Uh, so we don't listen to the world's view. We conquer the world by our faith and trust in Christ and our our living for Him. So by the time he gets done, he has tied these things all together. And you can't separate them. You can't have a Christian who just loves his brethren but doesn't believe that Jesus is in the flesh or he won't live right. Or or any other combination. Those three elements have to be tied together. Comments and thoughts. Yeah, because verse 2 is the opposite of verse 20. Right. <laughs> you, you show you love God by loving your brother, and you show you love your brother by loving God. If you love your brother, you want to do the best thing for him. The best thing you could do for him is to demonstrate love for God and keeping his commandments. So it is like, wow, it's just... Um, you can't you can't separate these things. Ultimately, they all go together. All right, six to twelve. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testified, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made himself a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has a life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay. This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Now that's, that's what in the world is that talking about? There's all kinds of perspectives. What it, He seems to be taking it for granted that Jesus... Uh, Comes with the water. But he's saying he didn't just come with the water, he comes with the blood. So I think the false teachers were saying that Jesus Christ came with the water, but not with the blood. He's saying, don't, don't, it's not just Jesus Christ comes with the water. It's not the water only, with the water and with the blood. So what's the water and the blood? Baptism. baptism of Jesus. He came. Jesus Christ came uh, with the water by the water, but the blood would be. And you see, not by the blood, according to the Gnostics, because they said you couldn't kill God, and so the Christ had left Jesus before the crucifixion. So they would say, Je- the Christ Jesus Christ came with the water. The Christ came upon him in his baptism, but not with the blood, not at his crucifixion. The Christ had already left Jesus before he was crucified. So I think he's insisting that uh, Jesus was the Christ at both his baptism and his crucifixion. It was not merely a human Jesus, but it was Jesus Christ that was baptized and was crucified. This idea that the divine principle left Jesus before he died is not true. Now he says that there are three that testify, the spirit, the water and the blood, and these three are in agreement. So what the spirit said at Jesus' baptism and and what uh, we know at, at his crucifixion unite to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Anybody have the King James, or is the surely the New King James doesn't do this? Anybody got the New King James? Oh, where they add the verse. Uh huh. It's a footnote in my book. Okay, you got the New King James? No, I have New American Standard. Okay, yeah. Oh, I have a footnote as well. A few ma- late manuscripts add, "In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that testify on earth, the Spirit, etc." Um, so. This has been a proof text <laughs> for <laughs> the Trinity: the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Do you all know about this this missing verse? <coughs> only a little bit. This says that it was added later. It says a few late manuscripts add blah, 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 and it's the only verse that would actually spell out the fact that there is a Trinity. No Greek manuscript earlier than the 14th century contains this. No Latin or Greek father ever quoted this passage in the controversies about the Trinity. There's no version earlier than the 5th century that contains this. So the textual evidence is like just incredibly weak. Like not even a blip on the screen. However, here's what happened. Erasmus, in the early 1500s, um, printed uh, a a critical Greek text. He took the manuscripts that he knew, and with some principles of textual, ver- you know, verification, came up with kind of the what he considered to be the best you could tell, the correct text of the New Testament. <coughs> he was challenged about this verse. He said it wasn't in any of the manuscripts I looked at. And he unfortunately said that if he could be shown one Greek manuscript that had those words in it, then he'd put it in his next edition. And um, there was a manuscript that seems to have been produced right after he said that, that had those words in it. And in his next edition, he included it, he was true to his word, but with a footnote outlining his suspicions that the manuscript was produced to order, and that it wasn't textual. Our Bible, the King James Bible, was based largely on Greek texts that were derived from Erasmus' texts. And so that's why it's in the King James but it is the clearest example of a verse that absolutely has no business being in the Bible. It doesn't say anything wrong. It's just not in there. It's not textually. The evidence is incredibly weak. There's nothing else with evidence like that that we would ever even give a second thought to. You know, you got the oldest Greek manuscript that's got it is the 14th century for <laughs> Well, <coughs> that is really bad. <coughs> really bad. So just you're just talking about the extra part of the verse, not the whole verse? I'm talking about this part in the uh, uh, margin. Okay, so the part, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement, is the part, is the verse? That's correct. Okay. That's correct, yes. Um, okay, uh, so the three witnesses furnish one testimony. The spirit, the water, and the blood. Jesus was the Christ that's shown by what the spirit teaches. It's shown at his baptism. And it's shown at his crucifixion. The the spirit revealed the truth. That's how he witnessed. And uh, he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So you normally accept human testimony. Why don't you accept what God says? I mean, when do you accept what people... What when, when would you ever accept human testimony? Very trustworthy. In what situations do you accept human testimony? If there's an accident that happens and you have the witnesses uh, on this corner of the street and that corner of the street who saw the blue car run the light... In a courtroom kind of a thing, you accept the word of witnesses. What else do we accept the word of witnesses? Don't we every day in conversation? (laughs) In everything we do. I thought you were going to say, if there's an accident on the highway and on the radio they say, you know, northbound 465 is closed at such and such a place because there's been a fatality, you avoid that area. You accept the word of the witness. We do it in everything. We typically accept human testimony. Now, there are exceptions. When we know the character of the person, we know the person has an axe to grind or something to gain. You know, there's some situations in which we realize, no. But typically, we do accept human testimony. Why not accept the Lord's? We've got much more reason to believe what God says. If we reject the son, we're refusing to accept God's testimony about him. And so we're, we're attacking God's character. The one who believes in the son has this testimony himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he's not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his son. So if we reject the son, we're essentially saying that God's testimony is false. We are really calling God a liar by not accepting the son. So unbelief. It's not a misfortune to be pitied. It's a sin to be hated. Unbelief is wrong. We should accept the testimony of God. Our response to God's testimony is a matter of life and death. The testimony is this, that God's given His eternal life, and this life's in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the life. You know, so we have eternal life as long as we abide in the Son. If we leave the Son, we leave the life one of the arguments that is typically made on once saved always saved is this we have eternal life if you can lose it then it's not eternal (laughs) do you believe you have eternal life well if you have eternal life you have it forever i think here's a great answer to that The life is eternal it's in the sun we have it only as long as we stay in the sun. We leave the sun. We leave the life. The life is still eternal and it's still in the sun. We're no longer in the sun. Therefore, we no longer share in that life. <coughs> I think that's a very good way to approach that. That is one of the stronger Calvinist arguments for eternal security. They will argue on that base of eternal life. But I think this passage is really helpful in seeing that that's not the case. So... Uh, this gospel is not just about overcoming evil and about forgiveness it's about having life and we have life in the Son so it's important that we believe in the Son that we believe that Jesus uh, Christ has come in the flesh so we can share in the life the eternal life that's in the Son there's a lot in this it is hard to teach sometimes it's hard to read I th- still think there's some really good things in this and it'll probably help us to go back and keep meditating, but it's just not constructed in our analytical fashion. So he's always giving you a twist that you're not expecting. Comments and questions on all that? What was what was the purpose of the added verse? What were they trying to prove? Trinity. Yeah. Hey, somebody, what do I have in my notes? Uh... Uh, some tidy-minded scribe, scribe impressed by verse eight's threefold witness, must have thought of the Trinity. <laughs> ah, yes, and we have three that bear witness in heaven: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, I mean, it only takes one person, you know, getting the bright idea to write that in, and the and and you know, you've got it somewhere. Uh, you know, it clearly is an earlier than fourteenth century thing because you've got some other translations that have that, but only starting with the fifth century. So there was somewhere early on, but but it was it didn't catch on. <laughs> and what's and what's wrong with it? Nothing other than it's not textual. Yeah, no. it just didn't end there. You know, same thing with John eight one to eleven. There's nothing wrong with that story of the woman caught in adultery. But it's not textual. Now there's a lot more basis for that though than this. This is the one that absolutely if somebody argues that this is textual, they just don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> there's no way. John Eight, you could argue. Mark sixteen, I think is textual, but you could argue it. You know, you can't argue this one. I, mean, I don't think any knowledgeable scholar would argue that this is in there. I mean, well, the earliest Greek manuscript that has it is the fourteenth century, for crying out loud. Whoa. Uh, there's nothing else we accept on that testimony. So, Alright, well, we'll stop here for now. And, uh, I'll, we'll probably just try to do this whole thing again in two weeks. And I think.